You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now back to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. When you found your place, let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we come to your word and it is our desire that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide so that as we think upon and meditate upon the person of Christ and what he has done, our hearts may be lifted in praise and worship and in obedience to you, our great God. Thank you for these things and we thank you for your word. Grant that this may be true today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 20. I stopped last week or ended last week with the statement or the assertion that Christianity is a falsifiable religion. It's also a verifiable religion. And it's falsifiable in the sense that if you can prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, you can disprove Christianity. So it is really simple. If you want to put Christianity and its claims and the Bible on the ash heap of history and forget about it forever... All you have to do is deal with the fact that there was an empty grave and that people saw Jesus Christ alive three days after he was crucified. Uh, Disprove the resurrection and you disprove Christianity and and toss it away. Um, Our our claim that Jesus Christ is risen uh, and and the claims of Christianity are not rooted on a private revelation. They're rooted and grounded in and on a literal historical event that either happened or it did not. We make a historical claim. Our claim is not that Christianity goes back to uh, somebody who had a private vision in a closet with some seer stones or something like that in another foreign Egyptian language. Our claim is not that Christianity is a feel-good religion and that we believe things that are contrary to fact. Uh, Our claim is not that uh, one individual received uh, some book and wrote it down for us, and so we believe that one individual. Our claim is really simple. Our claim goes back to an historical event and an historical person. We believe that the God who created all things stepped into human history in the form of Jesus Christ. And we believe that he lived a perfect life. We believe that he claimed to be God in human flesh. We are claiming that he authenticated those claims by doing miracles among men, a multitude of miracles before multitudes of people, and all kinds of different miracles. He raised the dead, he healed the sick, he made the lame walk, he made the blind see. He created, uh, uh, he multiplied bread and fish and exercised dominion over the weather and over demons. And we are claiming that that individual was crucified on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem roughly 2,000 years ago. And that that crucifixion took place before a multitude of people, before a multitude of eyewitnesses in a very busy city in a very busy time of day and a very busy day of the year. And that thousands upon thousands of people saw that. And then we claim that that individual, Jesus of Nazareth, was prepared for burial and placed in a tomb near where he was crucified outside that same city of Jerusalem, and that the location of the body and that the location of the tomb was known to a large number of people. It was known to the women who witnessed the burial. It was known to the two men who buried him. It was known to at least a few of the disciples. It was known to Pilate, who stationed a guard there. It was known to the guard who was stationed there. And it was known to the Jewish leaders who asked Pilate to station a guard there. So the location of that tomb and the presence of that body was verified by a multitude of different people from all kinds of different interests, be it hostile to Jesus or even those who were sympathetic to him and to his claims. 
Now, that's all that we claimed. Then there would be no Christianity if that's where the story stopped. Because there's nothing unique about a Jewish man being crucified by Romans in and around the city of Jerusalem under Roman rule. That happened quite frequently. Uh, there was nothing unique about that or abnormal about that. Uh, Jewish men were crucified all the time. There were perhaps thousands upon thousands of Jewish men who were crucified by the Romans during the time that, Romans, the Rome, that Rome ruled the land of Judea. A Jewish man being crucified by Romans, the Jews, just another day that ends in Y. The name Jesus of Nazareth is just another on a long list of people who died at the hands of the Romans. But we also claim that three days after he was crucified, that the Father raised him up, that Christ raised himself up, and that the Holy Spirit raised up Christ from the dead. And further, that he was seen by the very same people who saw him on the cross. He was seen alive three days later. And that he presented himself as evidence that he had risen from the dead with many convincing proofs, as Luke says in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 3. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So now we come in our study in the Gospel of John to the eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ. There are in Scripture recorded ten different appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. Ten different ones. Five of those ten appearances happened on the first day after the resurrection, that very first day, Resurrection Sunday. Five of the ten appearances happened on that day. And we are claiming, and we know from Scripture and from history, that Jesus appeared to multiple different types of people in multiple different locations at different times of the day. It's not like he always appeared in the morning or always at lunch. Sometimes in the morning, they have appearances of him around noon and early afternoon. We have appearances of him in the evening. And he appeared to all kinds of different people, sometimes to one person, like to Mary Magdalene alone, sometimes to a group of people like the women. Or to the disciples. He appeared to Peter all by himself. He appeared to ten of his disciples. Then to eleven of his disciples. And then on the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, to seven of his disciples. And then on one occasion to over 500 witnesses. And he appeared in all kinds of different locations. He appeared at the tomb. He appeared in the city of Jerusalem or just outside the city of Jerusalem on the way out to Bethany. He appeared by a seashore. He appeared in a locked room. He appeared on a hillside. He appeared in all kinds of different locations. A lot of variety in those ten appearances that are recorded in Scripture. Of the ten appearances recorded in Scripture, John mentions and notes and records four of them. So John gives us four of them. He's just something to keep in mind. Of the four appearances that John records, two of those appearances are only recorded by John, and they're not mentioned or recorded by any of the other Gospel writers. So two of them are unique to John. One of the four is recorded by John, also recorded by Luke, and mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. And the fourth of the four that John records is recorded. The details are only given by John, not by any of the gospel writers, though Mark mentions the appearance in Mark chapter 16, verse 9. And it is that appearance, the one that is the details are recorded by John. Mark mentions it, but nobody else does. That is the appearance that we're looking at today with Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. And this, as I said, is mentioned by Mark just briefly. Mark says he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and that's Mark chapter 16, verse 9. So we're looking at that appearance today, beginning in verse 11. Let's read the text together. This is verses 11 through verse 18 of John 20. And we can divide this appearance into, into two parts, really. First, it's the angel's appearance to Mary inside the tomb. And then second, Jesus' appearance to Mary. So first the angels appear, and then Jesus appears. And that's kind of how we'll divide this up, just to keep them separate in our minds. Verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Now, I mentioned that that is recorded only by John and not mentioned only mentioned by Mark, but the details are not given by Matthew, Mark or Luke. And that's important because it's, it's important that we keep this resurrection appearance separate in our minds from the one to the other women. You remember the other women arrived at the tomb. Mary left by herself to go back and tell Peter and John. Then she arrived back with Peter and John while the other women had left and gone back into the city. And so she came out with Peter and John. So this is an appearance to Mary Magdalene. It is the first appearance of our Lord, and it is only to Mary, not to the other women. So if you read about the appearances to the other women and you think that this is describing the same incident, you're not going to be able to reconcile them or harmonize them in your mind because it is entirely two separate and different appearances. All right, so this is the first appearance of Jesus to any of his, any of his followers after his resurrection, and it is an appearance to Mary Magdalene. Before we jump into the text at verse 11, we should point out something that is odd about the appearances of Jesus in general. It's worth noting that the first appearance to Jesus was not to any of his 12 disciples. That's kind of odd to us, isn't it? I mean, it is unique because you would expect that having spent three years with these men, teaching them and training them and preparing them for life without him and the mission that he was preparing them for, you would think that having spent the evening with them prior to the crucifixion, that one of the first people that he would expect or want to appear to would be Peter or John or James or even all 11 of the remaining disciples. That's what we would anticipate and expect. But the first appearance of Jesus after the resurrection is not to any of the twelve and certainly not to any of the leading disciples. That's odd enough. But you know what makes it even more odd? That the first appearance to Jesus was to a woman. Now, that's not odd in our context. We wouldn't think anything of that in our historical context. But that the first appearance of a woman or first appearance of Jesus to a woman is amazing, is, is amazing. It is due to the fact that in that cultural context at that time, women were not considered uh, reliable witnesses. They were not allowed to testify in a court of law. The testimony of a woman was considered worthless and useless. And if you wanted to establish that something was true, if you wanted to establish that something had happened and you wanted to, to bank the believability of your claim on something, you would never rest it on the testimony of a woman. Never. You would never do that. Now, some of you are scowling and not sure where I'm going with this. I'm not, I'm not about to, I'm not setting this up for some sexist or chauvinist joke or anything like that. And to, please don't shoot the messenger. I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what was true 2,000 years ago in that culture. You would never rest the believability of an event upon the testimony of a woman. And quite frankly, this is one of those things that, if it were not true, were never, would never be recorded. And that's important to keep in mind because there are people, skeptics and atheists and and disbelievers in the New Testament, unbelievers in the New Testament, who will say that the gospel accounts of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and all that Jesus did, these were written decades after the events actually occurred, a long time after the events actually occurred, while the body of Jesus was still in the tomb, rotting away, just bones, that decades later that they fabricated this entire thing, the entire story, all of it was made up, and it was a carefully crafted deception, that that's what the gospels were. That is what is claimed. If that were true, nobody would make a woman the very first witness of such an event. 
Imagine that you're sitting around with a bunch of, of your friends in the first century, decades after Jesus has lived and died and he's still in the tomb, and you're thinking to yourself, we should come up with a good story, a real believable story. Let's tell a story about him. Uh, it doesn't, none of it has to be true because all the eyewitnesses are really dead, and so you're, you're gathered together with a bunch of your friends, and you got Bob there and Jim and Joe and Curly Moe and Larry, and then you're thinking to yourself, let's come up with a good story. So you think, what, what are we going to do? And one of them suggests, let's, let's create a story about a man who claimed to be God. Oh, that's good. Let's go with that. That's good. What else can we do? Well, if he claims to be God, he should have some way of proving it. So let's let's say he did a, a bunch of miracles, and not just a few miracles, but all kinds of different miracles, and not just and not just all kinds of different miracles, but so many miracles that we can actually claim that there's no way that we could record all the miracles that he did because he did hundreds upon hundreds of miracles. So let's, that just seems too unbelievable. Too unbelievable. What are we gonna? What else are we gonna put in the story? Well, at some point he has to die, but he can't just die a normal death. So let's make up. Let's make up that he died at the hands of the Romans, that he, was, that he was killed, that he was murdered because of the claims that he made. Oh, that's a good one, you think to yourself. That's a good one. Let's go with that. But then what happened? Well, let's make it, this has to be in some way good news. So let's say that he rose from the dead three days later. Let's make that up. And somebody in your group would say, nobody will ever believe it. No, no, you're right. Nobody will ever believe that. So we have to say that he was witnessed by people who saw him. Who's going to be our very first witness to the resurrection? Oh, I know. Let's make it a woman. If you wanted something to be believed, you would never do that. This is something that the very fact that it is recorded is evidence that it is true. Because if it were fabricated, nobody would fabricate a story and then base its believability upon the testimony of a woman in that culture. Nobody would do it. And it's not just the first appearance where it is a woman who is a witness. It is the second appearance. It is a group of women who are witnesses. So you don't even get anybody in that culture who is believable until at least the third appearance of Jesus on that Sunday. So at least the third appearance. Nobody would ever do that. You would never bank the believability of your story on the testimony of a woman. The fact that it is here is evidence that it is true. It is evidence of the authenticity of this record. Nobody would record that if it were not true. Okay, keep that in mind. So let's dive in at verse 11. We see Mary. Let me find verse 11. Here we are. Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Now this is going to be the appearance of the angels. Now, remember, verse 10 tells us that Peter and John had gone back to their own, back to their own homes or wherever they had come from. So they have left. And Mary is lingering around outside of the tomb at this point, And she is all alone. The other women have already left to go back into the city to tell the other disciples. So she is alone at the tomb and nobody else is there. And, and, this, and now she is weeping. And that's, we, that's what we are to understand is her mental state at this time. She is weeping. It's mentioned four times here. It's mentioned twice in verse 11. And then it's also mentioned by the angels who say, why are you weeping? And then later on by Jesus who asked her the same question, why are you weeping? So we are to picture a woman who is intensely and, and deeply emotionally distraught over these events, over the fact that the tomb is empty and she does not know where the body is at. So she is lingering around outside of the tomb and why she stuck around, nobody knows. Was it because out of love for Christ? Was it because this was a quiet place and nobody was there? Did Peter and John leave her there on her own to stay there until others arrived? Why is she standing outside of the tomb? We don't know, but she walked up and she looked inside the tomb. Now, here's another question. Why did she look inside the tomb? She, she knew or believed very, she, she believed very deeply that the body was gone. She knew that. Peter and John leaving there certainly didn't say anything to her about there being a body in there. So when she looked into the tomb, what was she expecting to see? Was she expecting to see a body? Was she just checking it out for herself? Or was Mary in that emotional state where when she's looking in the tomb, if you had walked up and asked her, Mary, why are you looking in the tomb? What are you looking for? She would have said, I don't even know what I'm looking for. I don't even know what I'm expecting to see. 
Have you ever been in that state of mind? Standing in front of the refrigerator with the doors open? What are you looking for? I don't even know what I'm looking for. I'm just hungry. can't tell you how many times I've walked into the kitchen to see my kids standing there looking into the refrigerator. What are you looking for? I don't know. Well, is there a movie playing in there? Shut the door. We don't need to... You just stand there and go stand in front of some other door and not know what you're looking for, not the refrigerator door. So maybe that's the emotional state that Mary was in. She's just looking into the tomb. She's not even sure what she's going to expect. She just wants to see it for herself. Maybe she wants to see the grave clothes for herself. Or maybe the two angels appeared in there and she saw the radiance of that glory, the light coming out of the tomb. And that caused her to inquire what was in the tomb. Because when she looked inside, she saw those two angels sitting there. And John says that she saw them sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. One of the angels is seated at the head, where his head had rested, and one of them at his feet. And they were seated on that stone tablet where the body of Jesus had been. And we could probably assume that if the grave clothes were still there, if they hadn't been taken by Peter and John, that those grave clothes would have been folded up, sitting right between those two angels. I think that it's safe to assume that these are the same two angels, one of whom came down and tossed the stone away. And of the same two angels, this is the one who sat down. One of these is the one who sat down on that stone and terrified the soldiers. This is probably the same two angels who appeared inside the tomb to the other group of women just a few minutes earlier than this. And now these women, or these angels are appearing to Mary inside the tomb. And remember, she is outside the tomb. And she looks in and she sees the two angels there. Let me ask you a question. Were these angels present while Peter and John were inside the tomb? Were they present there? Scripture seems to indicate that angels can be visible or invisible depending on the will of God or whatever their particular commission is. It can be visible or invisible. Just because you don't see angels around you does not mean there are not angels around you. Just because you do not see angels does not mean that they do not exist. Angels can appear or disappear. So were these two angels in the tomb when Peter and John were there? I suspect that they probably were. Probably seated in the same location while Peter and John were inside the tomb. And now they have become visible to Mary. Why didn't they make themselves visible to Peter and John? They made themselves visible to Mary. She saw them sitting there, and it, it appears that she understands exactly who they are and the nature of these beings. And angels, when they appear, appear in human form, looking like men and as men. They're sometimes described just as, as two men. These two angels are described, I think it's in, uh, I think it's in Matthew, or no, Luke. The two angels appear looking as men right there in the tomb. So I think that they were there when Peter and John were inside the tomb, though Peter and John could not see them. And J.C. Ryle suggests something interesting. He, he suggests that these two angels are seated there, and the position and the attention and the attitude of the angels in seating, one at the head and one at the feet, was as if they were sentries inside the tomb. And J.C. Ryle suggests that maybe those angels had been placed there or stationed there that Friday afternoon when they laid the body there, and their job was to guard the body of the Lord Jesus. And when Mary saw this, it should have been obvious to her and to the other women who visited the tomb and saw the angels that those angels were there and that they would be able to guard the body of Jesus and making a grave robbery impossible. So it is almost as if these two angels are sentries who are stationed inside the tomb there, and now they're hanging around after Jesus has risen and he is gone. So verse 13, And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Why did the angels ask Mary that question? It seems that they would know why she was weeping, right? Do you think that they did? I don't know how you picture this, but this is my sanctified speculation. I picture that when the angels asked that question, there was something of a, of a smile, a smirk, a knowing, joyful expression on their face. These angels are not really inquiring as to why she's weeping. 
They know that. The question is intended to get Mary to examine something about her own heart and her own state of mind and why it was that she was weeping. But the angels, the angels knew better. So I can almost picture them with a smirk on their face. So why are you weeping? Because they knew what the truth was. And notice how Mary's, Mary's grief, her weeping, is completely out of place. What is she weeping over? An empty tomb, of all things. Now, if she had showed up and there had been the body of Jesus inside the tomb, would she have been weeping? No. She would have been sad. Sad that he was dead. Probably still feeling that emotion. But would she be weeping like this? No. Her weeping is entirely out of place. She shows up and the tomb is empty. And what is her response? To weep at it. If the tomb had been full with a body in there, she wouldn't have been weeping. And this shows the complete disconnect, right? Part of the reason for the angel's question is to show the, the incongruity of this whole scene. You are weeping, and you are weeping at an empty tomb. And Mary is much like we are at many times. Sometimes we weep over things that we ought not to weep over. That if we only had more information and could see it from God's perspective, it wouldn't be a cause of weeping at all, but a, a source of great joy. And likewise, sometimes we are filled with joy and happiness over things that if we really knew the eternal perspective on this, they wouldn't be sources of joy to us at all, but intense weeping. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, what thoughtful, what thoughtful Christian, Christian can fail to see that we have here a faithful picture of many a believer's experience? How often we are anxious when there is no just cause for anxiety. How often we mourn over the absence of things which in reality are within our grasp and even that are right at hand. Two-thirds of the things we fear in life never happen at all. And two-thirds of the tears we shed are thrown away and shed in vain. Let us believe that these things are often working together for our peace and joy, which seem at one time to contain nothing but bitterness and sorrow. And even at this point, as Mary confesses, they have taken away the body of my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She is weeping over something, but only because she has no full information on it. She still is in a frame of mind that has believed and believes intently that the body is missing. The the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, the presence of the folded up grave clothes, even the presence of the two angels in their searching question, none of that is enough to shake her from this conviction that the body has been taken. All of that in front of her, and she still can only see the circumstance and the situation through her natural eyes, her natural perspective, and with her natural viewpoint. And so she is convinced that this is the explanation for the things in front of her, even though all of the evidence is contrary to what she is assuming to be true. It was contrary enough that when John showed up, he looked at the grave clothes and saw the headpiece, and what was John's response? He believed when he left the tomb. Peter was bewildered, but John believed. And she is utterly convinced, even at this late stage of the game, that the body has been moved. And she has no room in her thinking or in her heart or in her theology at all yet for a risen Christ. But then Jesus shows up in verse 14. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And why did she turn around? Why did she turn around? Did she see something? Did she hear something? Uh, It's been suggested that She turned around because she heard somebody walking up behind her. Maybe she was expecting other people to come to the tomb. Maybe expecting the other disciples would be rushing out there to check this out for themselves. You would know that, you'd have to guess that Annas would want to see the tomb for himself and Caiaphas would want to see the tomb for himself and the soldiers would probably return to explain what had happened and that Pilate himself might even want to come out at some point during the day to see the tomb for himself. Everybody would want to come out to the tomb to check this out. So maybe she is expecting that and she hears somebody walking up behind her And she turned, however briefly, and saw Jesus standing there, but did not recognize that it was him. Uh, J.C. Ryle suggests that perhaps the angels did something 
uh, a gesture like the raising of a hand or the nodding or looking past Mary or something to indicate that there was somebody behind her because she was stooping and looking into the tomb. And she turned around to see Jesus was standing there behind her. Chrysostom, an early church father, he suggests, and I think this is a glorious picture, though I don't know this necessarily true. He suggests that when Jesus appeared, that the angels stood up in adoration and awe of their risen master and either bowed down or did something to acknowledge that somebody was behind them. So that when Christ appeared, the angels stood in respect. Because who is standing there in their presence, right? Their creator is standing there in their presence. That might be true. Whatever it was, Mary turned around. She saw Jesus standing there, but the text says she did not recognize who he was. How could she not recognize who he was? Didn't she come there looking for him? How do you go there looking for him and not recognize who he was? There's quite a natural explanation for this that's been suggested. It is possible that with all of the weeping and the tears, that one of two things happened. Either Mary turned around and glanced and saw that there was a man standing there, and she quickly hid her face and her eyes in respect, not wanting him to see that she was weeping. And so she just, a, a quick glance is all that she needed to recognize. It wasn't Peter or John or one of the disciples. And so she glanced away, not recognizing that it was Jesus. Or it's possible that with all the weeping that her eyes were still filled with tears, that it was blurry, and she didn't have a chance to clear her eyes and, and see who it was. At either rate, she didn't recognize him. It's not the only place where the risen Christ was uh, unrecognized by those who saw him. There are two other occurrences. One is in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, when the men on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus appeared to them, Luke 24, verse 3 says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So there was a supernatural blinding. Jesus kept them from recognizing who he was. Now, there is a there is a reason for that that is kind of implied in the rest of that narrative. The reason being that Jesus, for the rest of that journey out to the city, the town of Emmaus, he spent all of that time explaining to them in all of the Old Testament law and the prophets the things concerning himself. He gave them a tour, a walkthrough of the Old Testament to show here's where I am in this and here's where the Messiah is in that and explain to them all the things in the Old Testament concerning him as to why he had to die and rise again. And it wasn't until later that their eyes were opened, Luke says, and they recognized with whom they were speaking. The second instance is actually here in the Gospel of John in chapter 21, uh, when the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and the Jesus is on the seashore. It says they didn't know that it was the Lord. They didn't recognize who it was. Now, why didn't? why is it that some people recognized him and some people didn't? Ultimately, we don't know that for sure. In some instances, they were kept from recognizing who he is. But there seems to be something about the, re- the resurrected body of Jesus that was different enough that people did not immediately recognize him, but similar enough to his old body that once recognized, they did not mistake him. Okay, let me say that again. There was something different about the resurrection body that people did not immediately recognize him, but something so strikingly similar to it that once they recognized it, they did it. They could not mistake it. it would, they couldn't see that it was anybody but him. Now, why is that the case? There seems to be the indication in Scripture that our resurrected bodies, when we are raised from the dead as well, our resurrected bodies will be the same body that you are in now, but a different body. It will be different in many regards, but it will be the same body in many regards. There is a one-to-one correspondence to that. Now, there's nothing in, you can stop looking in your New Testament if you're looking for a before and after photograph of the Lord Jesus before the resurrection, after the resurrection, here's what he looked at. You can see that there are difference. We don't have anything like that, but we do have an analogy given in 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul likens our resurrection body to a seed that is sown in the dirt. And he is answering the question, what kind of body will the raised come forward with? And so Paul uses an analogy of a seed. Now, this last week I planted my, my garden. 
and I put some corn seeds in the ground. Now, that corn seed that I put in the ground and the plant that comes up from it, are they the same? Yeah, they are. That seed will produce that plant and that plant only. It can produce no other plant because that seed is genetically exactly what that plant will be. And the, the amount of fruit that is on that plant and the style of that plant and the nature of that plant, the species of it, all of it is determined by the seed. The plant cannot be anything except for what that seed is. So there is a one-to-one correspondence between the seed and the plant. But are they identical in the sense that they are exactly the same? No, one is a seed and one is a plant. And Paul uses that analogy, and so it is with the resurrected body. What is sown is a natural body, and what is raised is a glorious body. It is the same body. The, The body in which our Lord was raised is the exact same body that hung on the cross, but it is glorious and it is not a natural body. It is a supernatural body. And it is a body which cannot die. It is a body that cannot suffer uh, illness or disease or death ever again. So it is the same body, but it is a different body. It was different enough that people did not immediately recognize him, but similar enough that once recognized, we know who he is. And now we know exactly who he is. Okay? It was different, but similar. And I think that that is part of what is going on here. Mary saw him, but she did not recognize him. And so Jesus asked her the same question that the angels asked her, but he added another question to it. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, the why are you weeping is the exact same question that the angels had asked uh, her. But Jesus now adds the question, whom are you seeking to it? Why are you weeping? And And I think that the intention of that question, which he asked, is the same as the angels to point out the incongruity of this scene. Why are you weeping at an empty tomb? This is intended to show how how ridiculous the whole thing is. But the second question is intended to show even more how ridiculous it is. Whom are you seeking? Mary, give a thought for just a moment as to who it is that you are here looking for. Whom are you seeking? Who am I seeking? Whom am I seeking? I'll tell you who I'm seeking. I'm seeking the one who is the king promised in the Old Testament who would sit on David's throne and he would rule and reign forever and never die. That's the one I'm seeking. I'm seeking the one who is the bread of life. I'm seeking the one who is the living water. I'm seeking the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will never die. I'm seeking for the one who promised that if we believed in him, he would raise us all up on that last day because he promised that he would raise himself up from the dead. Who am I seeking? I'm seeking the one who is the Lord of life himself, the giver and substance and source of all life. That's who I'm seeking. Now, sir, please tell me, where did you put his body? See how ludicrous that sounds? Just a moment of reflection about who it is that we're seeking should have been enough for Mary to recognize that he is the risen one. But she didn't, still didn't, until he called her name in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. That one name, Mary, she had probably heard that countless times in all of the conversations that they had had with one another and the and the talking and the visiting and etc. She would follow him and listen to him and support his ministry. She probably heard him say her name. But that one name spoken one time had an effect to it which opened her eyes to what was before her and allowed her to see everything for what it was in truth. And she recognized when she heard him say her name, just as the good shepherd does, and we hear his voice and he calls a sheep by name. When she heard that name, she recognized exactly who was calling it. And she heard that and she knew who he was. And so she said, Rabboni, which means teacher. It means teacher. And John translates that for us. It means teacher. Now, is Jesus the teacher? He certainly is. But you would think that a resurrection from the dead would cause her to maybe think in terms a little bit higher than just a teacher, right? The fact that he raised himself from the dead, you call him teacher? That's something of an understatement. 
Compare that to John's statement at the end of chapter 20 when John sees the risen Christ, or sorry, Thomas's statement, when Thomas sees the risen Christ at the end of John 20, what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. So it is almost as if Mary recognizes who he is. This is Jesus. But she has not yet recognized who he is and what the resurrection says concerning his true identity. And so she calls him teacher. And Mary turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And the fact that she turned again indicates that after she had turned and saw him and didn't recognize him, that she turned her head away, probably a customary cultural thing for a woman to do when you are alone in a place and there is a man nearby, you would turn and not look and not address him. And so she probably did that, turned away, maybe turning back to have a conversation with the angels who were in the tomb. But when Jesus said Mary, she immediately knew who he was and she turned around. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize or hyper-allegorize the text or anything like that, but I cannot help but see here in the picture in, in what is happening here, a very vivid picture of our own salvation. You and I, before we are saved, we are stumbling through life and we have all of these things that are true in front of us. And we see the truth that is laid out in front of us and yet we don't recognize it, we don't understand it, we assess it with our own mentality and our own worldview and we have explanations for all of this stuff, how all of it fits together. But eventually the one who is the great shepherd calls us by name, he calls us by our name, and it is an effectual call. And with that call comes the opening of the eyes and spiritual understanding and discernment and faith and repentance. And at that moment of regeneration, guess what happens? All of a sudden, everything that we saw before but could not fully understand or explain, all of a sudden, all of that makes perfect sense. Did that happen to you with salvation? I had heard that Jesus died. I had heard that Jesus rose. I had heard that the Bible is true. I had heard that God created everything. I'd also heard evolution and all kinds of other ideas and myths and fables and legends and all kinds of scientific theories and all of that. And I had ways of explaining all of the details, how we got here and why everything was the way it was. But when I sat there and heard the gospel and God called my name and he saved me, when the light came on, everything changed. Life went from black and white to technicolor in an instant. And suddenly I understood and could explain everything now, but now in terms of what was really true and how things really were. When Jesus called her name, it was as if the light had come on. And I bet at that moment, if we could pause it, Mary would say something like this. Ah, the empty tomb, the rolled away stone, the folded up grave clothes, the presence of the angels. It all makes sense now. He's alive. He's risen. And now she recognizes him for who he was. Verse 17 is something of a difficult verse to understand exactly what Jesus is getting at and how all of this fits together. But I'm going to attempt this. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples that I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Verse 17 is somewhat enigmatic, partly because we're not sure. Is, is Jesus talking here in, when he talks about do not cling to me? Is Jesus speaking about physically clinging to him and touching him? Is he prohibiting that? Or is he speaking here of some sort of an emotional attachment that he is reproving her for? Is it physical or non-physical? And what exactly was Mary doing? Did she rush up and give him a hug? Did she fall down at his feet and worship like the other women did in Matthew 28, 8 through 10, where it says that when Jesus appeared to the women out on the road as they're going into Jerusalem to tell the rest of the disciples that they fell down and, and grabbed a hold of his feet and worshiped him. So did Mary do that? Our, our lack of ability to understand exactly what Jesus is describing here is partly due to the fact that we don't know exactly what Mary did. We don't know exactly what Mary did, but the language does suggest to us that whatever Mary was doing, Jesus is telling her to stop do that. He's not telling her not to start doing something. So he is 
he is saying to her, stop clinging to me. In some way, she was clinging to him at that moment. He's not saying, now listen, don't start clinging to me. That's not the essence of it. But the idea is to stop doing what she was already doing. So I picture in my mind that she probably, in this rush of joy and excitement and enthusiasm and love and amazement, rushed up and in some way embraced him, grabbed him, fell down at his feet, grabbed his feet maybe in worship. Something like that happened. So she was clinging to him physically in some way. Now, there's nothing, there's nothing about us touching the risen body of Christ or the glorified body of Christ that would have been inherently sinful because the other women did it, but Jesus never reproved them for doing it in Matthew chapter 28. Furthermore, Jesus did say to Thomas, put your finger into my hand and put your hand into my side and see the wounds for yourself and do not be unbelieving, but believing, where Jesus actually encouraged Thomas to touch and see that a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So because Jesus did that, encouraged somebody else to touch him and see, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong or sinful about touching Christ in his risen state. What Jesus seems to be suggesting with Mary is that she not cling to him in some way that was inappropriate to the circumstances or inappropriate to what she was, what she was thinking that she was doing. Let me try and flesh this out just a little bit. J.C. Ryle in his commentary has something that, suggest, uh, that is helpful, and this may be true, and I'm, I'm throwing this out there because I don't think that this is outside of the pale of what is possible here. J.C. Ryle, he handles this very delicately. He says that in a rush of joy and in a rush of excitement and enthusiasm and love, Mary rushed forward and did something without realizing that she was doing something that was culturally improper that she ran up and embraced him and grabbed a hold of him. And without suggesting that Mary was doing anything sinful or immoral or intentionally uh, suggestive in any way, but that was, that that was something that was culturally improper and that Jesus is saying to her with, in a very mild rebuke, Mary, stop clinging to me. Now, if that's what Jesus meant, why is it that he didn't do that when the other women fell and clung his, to his feet, grabbed his feet? Because there was more than one woman there. And many of them would have been older women who were there. But in this culture and context, they are alone at the tomb. This is what Ryle is suggesting. They were alone at the tomb. This would be improper. Understandable, but culturally improper. And that Jesus is saying, he's stepping back. Mary, do not cling to me. I think that's a possibility. But I, I, I think that more central to our understanding of the text must be what is to follow about the ascension. Notice that Jesus mentions that in, in, the, in the same sentence. Do Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Our understanding of what he means by do not cling to me has to involve some way this idea of the ascension and what Jesus is getting at there with the ascension. He doesn't want her to cling to him because he has not yet ascended. And he is looking forward to those 40 days, that event that would happen 40 days hence, where he would ascend back to the Father. So I think that there are two ideas that are here that Jesus is driving at. He is suggesting to Mary, Mary, I am going to ascend to the Father. So you cannot cling to me like this and don't get used to clinging to me like this because things, now that I am risen, I'm summarizing here, now that I am risen, things are not the way that they were. In other words, I didn't just come forward from the grave and now we're going to hang out. Everything's going to be like it was before. We're going to go fishing. We're going to go traveling and we're going to walking around and you have me with you all the time. Things are different. I will yet ascend to the Father. In other words, this time between the resurrection and the ascension, he has certain things in mind. He was going to be doing certain things. And she had to be looking forward to not just 
having him back and everything is like it was, but having him back with a view to the fact that he was, in fact, going to be leaving. And that, I think, is the second part of the second idea. When he says, do not cling to me, I think he is suggesting to Mary, um, I'm going to be ascending, but it is not for a while. I have not yet ascended. So, Mary, we have a little bit of time. We have 40 days. So stop clinging to me like you're never going to see me again, because I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving yet. You will have more opportunities for us to talk and for us to visit. But now I want you to go and tell my disciples. And he says, tell my brethren, actually, that I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. And this is interesting. This is the first time in uh, in the Gospels that we ever hear of Jesus refer to the disciples as his brethren. Now, he has called them slaves in the Gospel of John. He has called them friends in the Gospel of John. But this is the first time that Jesus ever called the disciples his brethren. See, something has changed now with the death and the burial and the resurrection. Something has changed. Something is different. Something is true now that wasn't true before. And what is it? It is the fact that not that Jesus' relationship with the Father has changed, but their relationship with the Father has changed. Now that their salvation has been purchased and their price has been paid and he has risen from the dead, they are brought into a relationship with him as their brother, as it were. And the, their father and, and his God now is their God. His father is their father. And notice the description there. It is unique. Why does Jesus not say, I ascend to our father and our God? Why does he say my father and their father or my father and your father, my God and your God? It is because Jesus is indicating that two things are true. Number one, that there is a similarity between his relationship with the father and their relationship with the father. Yes, they and consequently all those who believe in Christ have been brought into a familial relationship with the father, whereby he is our father. And we relate to him as such. But Jesus is the son of God in a different sense than I am a son of God. I am a son of God by adoption. Jesus is a son of God by nature and by right. He has that sonship and that relationship by virtue of who he is. He is the second person of the Trinity. I have that relationship by virtue of the fact that I've been adopted into the family of God. He is a son by right. I am a son by adoption. And the same thing is true with our relationship to him as our God. Jesus, the divine son in human flesh, can refer to the father as his God without any sense of impropriety or oddity whatsoever, because Jesus, as the incarnate one, as the incarnate son of God, he did have a God who was the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. The father was the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has a relationship with the father. But again, his relationship with God as God, because he is God, is different than our relationship with God to God is different than his because we are not God. We are brought into that relationship and we have him and own him as our God because of what Christ has done, not because of who we are or anything that we have done. And so that is the sense. And now now Mary went and she did and she told the disciples exactly what it was that Jesus had sent her back to tell them. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. And here's your puzzling question for the day. Why didn't Jesus appear to Peter and John just a few minutes earlier at the same tomb? Why didn't the angels make themselves visible to Peter and John? Peter and John were there just moments earlier. Certainly the Lord knew that Peter and John were there. Certainly the angels knew Peter and John were there. The Lord knew that that's where Peter and John were at, and he knew when they would leave. Why didn't the Lord appear to Peter and John and Mary right there at the tomb? Because Peter and John were there just minutes prior to this appearance. Why is that? You know why it is? I was hoping you did because I don't. I have no idea why it is. That Jesus wouldn't do that. But I do know this, that in the sovereign providence of God, he knows exactly when his people, his sheep, need to know certain things, need to 
come to an understanding of certain things. He and his providence knows exactly how to handle each one of his sheep. He knew that the best thing for Mary was that Mary see him here. He knew that the best thing for those other women was not to see him at the tomb at this moment, but to see those women on the road outside. And he knew that the best thing for Peter was to see Jesus later that day. And the best thing for the disciples as a whole was to wait until later that night to see him. And he knew that the best thing for Thomas was not to see him at the tomb or even on that resurrection Sunday, but not until eight days later. Jesus knew all of that. And so he handles his sheep because he knows each one of us. And he knows us by name and he knows exactly what we need to know and when we need to know it. And he handles us according to that knowledge that he has of us. Here's what you and I are to understand from this appearance of the Lord Jesus. John says he writes these things so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So we are intended, as we read through this, we are intended to see that empty tomb through the eyes of John and through the eyes of Peter, and we are intended to believe. He wants us to see the risen Christ through the eyes of Mary and believe. We are supposed to hear the Lord Jesus Christ's voice through the ears of Mary, and we are to believe. What does John want us to do as a result of this? To understand that he died for sinners, he gave his life for his sheep, and he rose again, and we are to believe on him as a result of that. And when we believe upon him for salvation, his God becomes our God. His Father is our Father, and we call Christ our brother, because he is our God, our Lord, and our God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father and gracious God, you have brought us into a, a relationship with yourself all because of, of your own glory and your own namesake. You have done these things to honor and glorify yourself and to reveal your loving kindness and your grace and your glory uh, to the entire world and to the angels and to your elect ones. And we thank you that you have loved us in your son and we thank you that you have brought us to a knowledge of the truth. And thank you that you do so in your own timetable and according to our needs and what you know is best for us. Sometimes you save us early in life, sometimes late in life, but you know what is best for your sheep in terms of when we come to know you. We thank you that you have given us that faith to believe and that you have brought us to that knowledge of the truth. We love you and we thank you for what the resurrection of Christ means for us and what you will do for us. We know that the plan of redemption and salvation is not complete. There's so much left to unfold and to happen. And we know that we will be with him in glory and when we see him, we will be made like him. We will get eternal bodies just as the Lord Jesus did. And how we long for that day and we look forward to it with great anticipation. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.